Well, good morning, everybody. As Richard mentioned, surprise, I am here again for the third week. Uh, so just a little update on Chris right now as he is making his way back. His plane was slightly delayed on the, on the route back, so he should be arriving back here in Tennessee during our time together this morning. So let's just continue to pray for him for safe travels and specifically for rest as he returns from a lengthy and, and very heavy trip. Uh, thankfully, through the holidays, he'll be able to. Uh, so we will be in chapter 10 this morning. We are going to kind of deviate from the reading plan a little bit. I know we were supposed to go all the way through the end of the chapter, but we're going to stop at verse 25 today. Um, so if you can, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Like I said, we'll be in verses 19 through 25. And before we read that again to prepare, let's think about a couple of things as far as this letter goes and where we are. We have reached the doctrinal peak of this letter to the, to the Hebrews uh, concerning the sacrifice of Christ. Up to this point, everything has been doctrinally heavy that Jesus in his personality, Jesus in his fulfillment, Jesus in his sacrifice are all doctrinal because our beliefs about him matter. We have to get this right. We have to start here. And so, like I mentioned last week, the writer of this letter is correcting the beliefs that these Jewish readers had concerning the Old Testament to a proper understanding of who the Messiah was. But think with me about the characteristics of Christ's one sacrifice being a better guarantee of our salvation than the repetitious sacrifices of old. This is what we've talked about up to this point. We have a better high priest. We have a high priest whose reign does not end. He doesn't sacrifice every year like the Levitical priests of old. Instead, he brought his own righteous blood to cleanse the heavenly tent and the heavenly dwelling place. Jesus, being our better and true high priest, appears face to face before God with no veil and no cloud over the mercy seat. That he's in his presence before God, nothing separating him. We've talked about that he is, the, he is better than the patriarchs of old, of the Jewish faith, that where they had failed, Christ succeeded. Where Noah failed, Christ came and did better. Where Moses failed, Christ came and succeeded. Where David failed, Christ did better. But we also talked about the purpose and plan of the Father that in, in planning and purposing Christ to appear in his first advent, at the center of all time, if you remember the writer of this letter says, this is the consummation of the ages. Everything in history, everything presently, and everything in the future points to that one time. It points to the cross where Jesus died on our behalf. It was at this particular and singular point in history that the Father authored this story of redemption, that Christ would come. Christ would grow in wisdom and in stature, and, and he would live a holy and perfect and righteous life. He would fulfill the scriptures of the Old Testament. And he would do this through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. <clears throat> that way, when he offered his one sacrifice, he could actually take away and forgive sin. 
where the bulls and the goats couldn't do it before. And because of that, his blood is better than the blood of the bulls and the goats. If you remember this from last week in Hebrews 10.4, the writer had taught us that it is impossible for the blood of these animals to actually take away sins. It was impossible because man is who God said, I will make in my image. Therefore, it was necessary that the atonement would come from a righteous man, that is, Jesus, fully God, fully man. And we talked about his blood being better because his blood, in an instant, like the snap of a finger, it justified us. And the writer said last week that in that same moment, we were made holy to appear in the dwelling and presence of God. That's why we can draw near, go back to Hebrews 4, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. So this is what we've come up to this point. This is the doctrinal basis on which we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is better. That everything in the old couldn't do it, but Christ could. That at the right and perfect time, Christ accomplished everything for our salvation. So let's go back to verses 19 through 25. Let's, let's, let's section out this passage for where we're going to be today. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's remember this first. <clears throat> the original recipients of this letter were first century Jews. I put that in context because just like many of the passages we've seen before, this one section would have stood out to them and left them flabbergasted and shocked. And there's a few reasons for this that we'll get into. But you see from verse 20, this is a new and a living way. The writer uses these terms because the old has been shown over and over again that the Old Testament, the, the temple, the sacrificial system, they were all pale reflections of the very image of the true image of salvation. But in these things of old, there was no life. That in the new covenant, in this new way, there is living life for us who believe and draw near. So the sacrificial system, the Torah, the temple, the Psalms, all of us, all, all of it, it showed us something, something about salvation, something about a glimmer and a hope of this, this promise of future salvation. But it didn't reveal to us the real thing until the perfect time, until the consummation of the ages. That's why Paul could say in Romans 5 that, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
It's an amazing, amazing thing. But look in verse 19. You see, therefore, this is marking a transition for us. I said up to this point, we've reached the doctrinal peak. The the beliefs about Jesus and his sacrifice, we've reached that. And so we're making this transition in the letter to, to go into the practical side of it or the moral or ethical imperatives of how do we live our Christian life. What, what, what the remaining portion of this book actually points us to is, is when we ask that question, what does it look like to live like a Christian? This is it. This is the beginning of the rest of this book for us that'll carry us all the way through to chapter 13. So we've reached the doctrinal peak. We've built the foundation. And now the writer says, from here on out, we're moving upward. We're building the house. The foundation is laid. And I think our issue today, if if we can be honest for a minute, our issue today in the church and why many of us ought to be afraid and tremble for our salvation is that we try to base our entire lives upon living a merely moral and ethical foundation. That we don't base it off of the foundation of Christ. We base it off of, I want to be a Christian. I've got to do good things. That's not how we are saved. That's not how we were saved. But now this foundation is laid and, and, and this foundation of trying to live merely morally or ethically so that we can be good enough for something, it can't last. Because I'll ask you the question, the same question that I would ask myself. What have we merited? What have we earned? Because if you don't know, I will tell you. For the wages of sin is death. That we have earned death because of our sin. We've earned death because of our transgressions, our trespasses, our iniquities. All of these things we've earned. And, and, and interestingly enough, the Jews today still base their life upon this idea of earning and meriting good works. And I actually want to point to something that I read this week from a, notice, a notable speaker. Uh, he said this, In Judaism, repentance transforms sins into merit. A virtuous life becomes a process of constantly refining one's actions toward what is righteous and good. Do you see the issue in that? Repentance turns sins into merit. This is an inference that the Talmud, it's a Jewish text, there, there is an inference that this makes to this idea. But the issue here is the foundation. What we'll see as we move forward in this, as we close out this book and we start moving into chapter 11, what we will start to see is that the, the, the patriarchs of the old did absolutely nothing to earn their salvation. Nothing. They possessed faith, which we've said before is a gift of God. Go back to Ephesians 2. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. But this faith that God gave them, gave them the ability and the power to obey and trust and believe in the God of the Old Testament because he's the same God in the New Testament who would send his own son at the perfect time to save everybody from the past, present, and future. But as we've mentioned before from the book of Acts, we are now on the other side of history, aren't we? 
or on the other side of history, that this faith now must be found in the Son of God. We condemn ourselves, we offend the Spirit, and we face the eternal wrath of God for rejecting the finished and completed works of Jesus. So as we make this transition into the the closing out of this entire letter, we need to start with the foundation, the, the doctrine and the beliefs. This is what the writer has been preparing these Jewish recipients for and what we ought to be prepared for as well. Because if we don't get the correct doctrine about the gospel, if we don't believe the right thing about the, do- the gospel, then we get it wrong and we find ourselves in a perilous situation. So as we move forward, as we, as we think about our own salvation... We have to think about our foundation being this, that the reason that we can be holy and enter the presence of God is because Jesus has finished his works completely and totally. If you remember from last week, he sat down at the right hand of God, that the priest of the Old Testament ministered daily. They never ceased. And when they died, the next high priest took his spot But Christ's reign never ends and his work is already done through the cross. Through the cry of the cross, it is finished. This is our foundation. This is is the reason why we are saved. We're not saved because because we're kind to, I'm kind to Tom and Joanne or I'm kind to anybody else in here. I'm saved wholly and completely because of Jesus and what he did in his life and on the cross. But now, now we have, you see this going back to 19, we have faith. It's another way that the writer can can say confidence. We have confidence. We have faith to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is our foundation. This is what our faith is. Our faith is a gift to believe, trust, and obey that Jesus has done everything absolutely necessary for us to enter into God's own dwelling. It's an amazing thing. But keep reading into verse 20 with me. This this new and living way through the veil which is his flesh. You see, the writer is drawing an inference here. He's drawing a, a, a metaphor of this veil that on the cross and on that dark day, the most glorious day in history, that veil was torn to make a way into the holy place of God. He's drawing this inference here to say that the veil was the body of Christ, that Christ's body was was torn, his blood was shed. He is the reason and he is the way into the Father's dwelling. And we have a great priest over this house. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. Do you see the practical implications of this? If you're a Jew receiving this letter in the first century, let, let me draw your attention to where their minds most likely went. Only the high priest could enter into the holy place behind the veil and only with smoke covering the mercy seat. The veil was still standing after each day of atonement. That the priest could go in one day, only one day out of the year. And when that day was done, the veil still stood. 
He could only, only the high priest could draw near to God and he couldn't do it fully. But Jesus, this is where the writer is coming in here to say, but Jesus has entered the eternal holy place. He has drawn near. And just as the veil was torn to make a way into this holy place, so also Christ's body was torn and blood shed to make a way for us to enter into this heavenly sanctuary. So the practical implications is this, that Christ transfers his righteousness to us. He gives us his robes of righteousness so that we, even us lowly creatures from the dust who back in the garden spit and mocked in God's face, even we could draw near Because what Christ has done, he's given to all of us. That we can approach the throne of grace and draw near with confidence. That we, We are on the right side of history. Because we can experience something that the patriarchs of old never could. We can go to the Father. We can go to his presence. Because when he sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness and he welcomes us in. But this confidence, if you, if you didn't catch this, this confidence is not arrogance. God is still holy. We come to the throne and we come to the holy of holies. But look at what he says. We do it with a sincere heart, with the utmost reverence and recognition that our hearts have been sprinkled and cleansed from an evil and guilty conscience by the washing of the pure water. We come to God with reverence and respect because he is still holy. And make no mistake about this. There is a connection here to baptism. There's a reason why that we celebrate, celebrate baptism as, an, as a sacrament here in the church. Because what baptism does, if you don't see what he's saying here, it's a reflection of the inward change that we've been given a heart of flesh and the removal of a heart of stone, that we have transformed minds and our guilty consciences are cleaned and relieved of the guilt. And so because of that, we have an outward expression through baptism that in Christ's burial, death, and resurrection, we identify with Christ. The high priest had to wash himself before he could enter the most holy place. This is back in Leviticus 16. But we can now do it ourselves based upon our faith and our identification with Christ in his life, his righteousness, his death, his atonement, and in his resurrection, his devoted obedience to the will of the Father. You simply trust and obey and identify with him. It is a privilege to serve such an awesome God. Amen? I mean, let us never take that for granted. Let us, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling to, to never assault or slander such a great, high, and holy name that, that God is who would author our salvation. He's an awesome God. But look at verse 23. Here we see something that we need to be reminded of every waking hour. Hope. See here, we are are to hold 
fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That this is our visible, the, the practical side of salvation. It's not, it's not that we do this to maintain our salvation. We have no power in that because Christ is the one who does that for us. The Father does it for us. We do this because it is a fruit and an evidence of our salvation. And you might ask, why do you say that? Look at John 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. He goes on, actually, the verse after that, to, to talk about those who, who believe in the Son of God. He will not lose one of them, and instead raise them up on the last day. And you go back to Hebrews 10.23. How is this true? How is it that he will not lose one? How is it that we can hold fast to the confession of our hope? Look at 1023. He who promised is faithful. He is faithful. He has kept every promise from the Old Testament about the cross and about a redeemer. He has not failed yet and he will not fail ever. But notice what I deliberately skipped over for a moment without wavering. Think like a Jew receiving this for a moment. You're being persecuted heavily, daily, hourly for this newfound hope and joy. And what the writer is saying here is hold on to your faith and the hope that you had. Hold on, bear the persecution. God is faithful. You see, I, I think this is why we do communion every week why it's it's beneficial for us as a congregation to take communion together and maybe this verse is the best explanation as to why because just like the persecuted jews of the first century our only hope of salvation our only hope of peace and our only hope of strength to bear the weight of any temptations and persecutions that come our way is christ and what he's done, and what God has promised to continue to do. You remember back to earlier in this letter, God swore to himself. He walked through the trench in making a covenant with Adam. He took it upon himself to say, if my promises are not fulfilled, if I break my promise, do to me like you did the animal. And he swore by himself because there was nobody else higher than him. Nobody more powerful, nobody more sovereign, nobody more holy. So he is faithful to his promises. And, and we need to remember this. We need this hope in us every week. Because look at 2 Timothy 3.12. I, I want us all to, to bear the weight and remembrance of this. That indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may not face the same kind of persecution that they do overseas. Our, our persecutions may come very heavily in cultural attacks or in temptations to cave into the cultural things, but it is a promise, it is a guarantee that Christians will face some kind of hardship and spiritual warfare in this world. But as sure as that is, it is surer and better that we have a God who is better than all of these things. That he will save us and he will take for himself a possession and a prize. 
a prize and a possession not destined for destruction, but for eternal life with him. I mean, what an awesome and a mighty God. He truly is. But look at verses 24 through 25 with me. Let's read these again as we sit together, as we hear together, as we think together. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Remember from Hebrews chapter 3, it's probably been a couple of months now, but you remember he says the same thing, to consider Jesus. That in our initial response to the gospel, in God's calling to us for salvation, there is an individual response that we must make to believe and profess faith in Jesus. But as sure as there is an individual responsibility, there is a corporate and congregational level of responsibility. And that's what the writer is saying here. He's stirring up in this community that they ought to be together. They ought to do something together. And what does he say that is? To love and to good works. In other words, let us outdo one another in kindness outdo one another in gentleness and grace and forbearing one another, enduring to the end, edifying, encouraging in hospitality and service and repentance and in good deeds, but not good deeds to save ourselves. Remember the foundation that's laid. We can't save ourselves, but we do good deeds to serve those around us that we might all bear the weight of each other's weight, heaviness, burdens, that we could continually walk this journey until the day that we are in the kingdom fully. This is why I think when we talk about communion, we talk about sharing or partaking in it, that there is a, a vertical response to God in communion. There is a humility that we have that recognizes the awesomeness of Christ on the cross, his body being broken, the promises of the old being fulfilled in that. But then we say there's a horizontal response, isn't there? That we do it together. We do it as a community to love and honor one another. But if you think I'm taking that too far in saying that, let me, let me tell you why I'm not. The same word used here for love, to love one another, it's the same word that is used for God's love. It's the same unconditional, relentless, forbearing, patient, merciful, gracious, and never-ending love of God. His agape love. That's why in John 15, Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide, live in God's love. Produce fruit from God's love. Care for the brethren, brethren in God's love. We only know how to love others because God first loved us. And what a shame and what an offense it would be to God when we don't love those around us, isn't it? That God was patient enough with everybody in this room to wait, some, some of you, a lifetime for repentance, for all of the hardships and frustrations that that 
in your old life, the old man that has died and is now made new in Christ, in the old man, you sat under the eternal wrath of God because you hated him. And he was patient and forbearing. He didn't, he didn't gripe and complain. He made a plan and purpose for you to come back to his love, to abide and find life in him. But he goes on, doesn't he? Goes on to verse 25. And I think the writer, he provides us with evidence of those who value very little this love of God. That those who, who think they understand how much God has loved them, they don't really value it. Because what does he say? Not forsaking our own assembly. Not forsaking the gathering of the saints. It's, kind, it, it's a pity, our American culture. That people leave and bounce from church to church for trivial things, insignificant things. I, I will say if there is ever a time where heresy and, 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 and unspeakable things and abuse are done from the pulpit here, leave and find a faithful church. But until then, until then, be with brothers and sisters who want to be faithful to the word of God to love each other. But I want to encourage you to take it a step further because I think the writer takes it a step further. And, and this, is, this is the word of God speaking to me just as much as it does speak to all of us, doesn't it? That we should not just gather for one day a week, for one hour. He doesn't say that, does he? That we shouldn't just gather for, for Sunday mornings from 10.30 to 11.30 and then we hop on out for the week because we'd have other places that we ought to be. He says something else. He says, ever increasing as you see the day drawing near. That, that is Christ's second coming. As it comes closer and closer to the end of the ages, let us, let, let us love one another so much that we gather together and see each other throughout the week. In fact, why don't we do it to make it day by day? Five minutes, encourage your brother. Because isn't that what he says we ought to be doing? Encouraging one another? So in conclusion, to talk about what we have, have looked at here, how do we live our Christian life? How do, we, how do we have joy? How do we experience this joy? Look at verse 22, faith. Verse 23, hope. And verse 24, love that our foundation is correct. Our faith and our belief in the God who saved us is right. And it is only his completed works that save us. And because of that, we have hope. Every time we take communion, every time we sit under the teaching of God's word, that we have hope about the things to come and what he has done for us. And because of that, we ought to love one another. These are the hallmarks these are the hallmarks of the Christian faith, of the new and living way. So do we outdo one another in love and good deeds? Do we serve those who give us headaches and anger? Have we become the one who gives others frustrations and angers? Do we need anything other than the right foundation of Christ's finished and completed works to stir this up? Never. It is fully, and he is fully more than enough for a new covenant and a new way to life eternal.
and we work hand in hand to encourage one another to the end, to that glorious day when Christ appears. Let's take a moment before we worship. I'll close this out, but let's pray by ourselves. Let's love one another today, can we? Let's pray for a little bit. thank you that we are all here with one another. We thank you that your word speaks to us, that you are clearer than any of us could be, that you know how we ought to live and how we ought to press on to make it to the end of this race and to be in your presence completely. We ask that you would give us hearts of of love, that you you would give us faith, those who haven't received it, and those who have, that you would spur up in us hope so that we could love one another. We could bear the burdens that we have with one another. That we could, we could love each other so much like you've loved us. We thank you for our time here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's praise, guys. Let's love each other. Let's get together and let's give God all the glory and all the honor. nothing worth more that could ever come close no thing can compare you're our living home your presence Lord I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone your presence Lord Holy Spirit you are welcome here come flood and fill the atmosphere your glory God is what our hearts long for
worth more that could ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living home. Your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone your presence lord holy spirit you are Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Your presence, Lord. Let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your
that time again where we all get to celebrate in communion and remember the body and blood of Jesus and as we talked about today let this be our hope our reminder to make it through this week today tomorrow next week because he is our only hope the faith that we've been given is our only hope so if you haven't taken it with us before remember to move the top film and pull out the wafer look back at Hebrews chapter 10 today. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Jesus' body was broken and it was torn so that he could make a way for us to enter the holy place of God. Do this in remembrance of him. And then we see from before He inaugurated this new and living covenant with us through His own blood. And He drank that cup of wrath so you and I can drink this. So do this in remembrance of Him. Let's praise God for this last song and let's encourage one another.
touch the world But it couldn't fill me A man's empty place Treasures that fade Are never enough And you came along And you put me back together desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's To show you my weakness, my failures and flaws, Lord, you've seen them all. You still call me friend, cause the God of the mountain is the God of the valley, and there's not a place you Yes. 
think I'm going to borrow from Josh Stevens before we leave. I love when he gets up here and prays and he says, can we love each other? Can we love each other as we go out this week? Encourage each other, assemble together, be with one another. I want to send you out with an encouragement and a benediction from 2 Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing them from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We love you guys. Take some time. Be be together. And we will uh, see you all in the coming week. You turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who cares. You turn graves into gardens. You turn blood.